This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's a Man Crush Monday. Join Professor Buzzkill as he crushes on men from history who deserve more fame and glory. Yes, indeed, it is Professor Buzzkill, and it is a Man Crush Monday. You know, Buzzkill is the main reason we do these Man Crush Mondays, is to bring attention to people from the past who've been overlooked and need to be given more historical attention, more historical glory. And boy, I can't tell you hardly anybody better than the person we're about to examine. But even more important than that, we have the author of his new biography, and this is Candace Shy Hooper. And by the way, Candace, why don't you tell us who you're here to talk about? I'm here to talk about Absalom Hanks Markland. Absalom Hanks Markland. By the way, that's got to be one of the best 19th century names ever. Yes, it really is, is a great name. And thank God his name wasn't John Smith, because I would never have been able to unearth his story. Well, first of all, tell us very basically who he was, and then we'll get on to the great fascinating story about how you found him. Absalom Markland was born in Kentucky in 1825, lived in the town of Maysville, where he went to school for just a little over a year with a young man who was boarding there with his widowed aunt named Hiram Ulysses Grant. I think we've Uh, heard of him. We have heard of him, although under a slightly different name. (laughs) Grant went from the Maysville Academy to West Point. Markland went on to Augusta College in Kentucky and studied law and became a steamboat clerk, then later ended up in Washington, D.C., working for the Pension Bureau. As the war came in 1861. He decided he wanted a job a little closer to the action, but he wasn't ready to actually join the military. And he went from clerking in the pension department in Washington, D.C., to deciding he wanted to get a little closer to the action and petitioned Abraham Lincoln, whom he had met as part of the Lincoln, Kentucky inner circle, petitioned him for a job as an army paymaster. And despite Lincoln asking Simon Cameron, his war secretary, three times to appoint this man, he didn't get the paymaster job, but instead a fellow Kentuckian, the postmaster general Montgomery Blair, brought him on to his operation as a special agent of the U.S. Post Office Department. They're now called postal inspectors. Mm -hmm. And what what did this mean in 1861, people don't realize that the post office has probably declined in importance over the last 200 some odd years. But but really, in 1861, this was a very, very important job. It was. In 1861, even before the war, the post office was one of the main engines of commerce in the country. And it was the thread that united the entire country, north and south, east and west. But in 1861, as as the war broke out, in June of that year, Montgomery Blair cut off postal service between the north and the southern seceded states. Mm -hmm. 
the biggest issue that arose at that time was that there were thousands and soon hundreds of thousands of men marching off away from their homes to places they'd never been to fight in the Civil War. And the job of keeping up, keeping the mail up to them was really monumental. And so special agents were assigned areas in which they would seek to uncork the bottlenecks and sniff out corruption and deal with the many problems that were plaguing the post office at that time. So he's not just organizing, delivering the mail. It's really not just a paper-pushing job. At that point, not. At that point, he is not. At, at the time in October of 1861, that he's named a special agent for Kentucky and assigned to the Cairo, Illinois office, which was mm -hmm. the, the hub for that area. He was really just assigned to try to deal with the problems in Cairo, Illinois, which were phenomenal. I mean, the post office was a tiny, tiny room that was filled to the ceiling with undistributed, unsorted letters. And there were 40 rail cars, according to more than one source, on a siding there full of mail that had not been sorted or delivered. And we should remind the bus killers that Cairo and places like that in that region of Illinois, they're the gateway to the West. We think of it now as the Midwest, but that's really the West. Now, that was definitely the West even then. And of course, at that point in time, in October of 61, Cairo was where sort of the newly minted Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant was sent to take command of that department, of that Western department, Western military department. And one day, as, as Markland is walking down the street, Grant spies him, recognizes him, even though it's been 24 years <laughs> since they last saw each other, and they renewed their friendship. A lot of listeners might be thinking, okay, big deal. The mail is backed up in Cairo, but the government has other stuff on its mind. There's a war coming. There's a war on. Why does, why does Absalom Marklin solving this mail congestion problem in Cairo, Illinois, why is that important for history? It's important because communication between soldiers and sailors and now airmen and their families is one of the most important elements in the morale of the troops fighting a war. And every commander since the Roman legions has known mm -hmm. that. And they have always sought to facilitate communication between the men on the front lines and their families on the home front. That is what allows them, each of them, to understand what the other is going through to support each other, to deal with issues that each may have, in particular during the Civil War, so many issues around finances for women who had not been in the habit of, of dealing with those finances before. And now their, their men are gone and the men are sending them letters, telling them what to do, suggesting things. But for the most part, it's really just this this bonding sense that the men could communicate with their wives, mothers, children, and that the civilians could communicate with their soldiers. 
Yeah, and if particularly in in Civil War, where after all, as, as people should know, there was no email, sending a telegram home would have been extremely expensive. Your average soldier certainly couldn't do that. So a soldier's really cut off if they can't get the mail that they're getting from home or, or mail that they're sending home. So what does Markland do to try to solve this Illinois problem in, in the start? Well, in the start, he basically cleans up the mess in Cairo. He gets the mail sorted with the talents that he has assembled and with his own innate sense of organization and, and leadership. He's been able to clean up the Cairo postal mess by February of 1862, at which time Grant comes to him and says, would you like to see a fight? And takes Mm. him on his boat to Fort Henry. And on the way to Fort Henry, Grant asks him if Markland thinks that he could keep the mail up to the soldiers, as he put it, and get the soldiers' mail home and get the mail from home to the soldiers. And Markland said he thought that 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 could happen. And as he says, from that origin, the great mail service of the Civil War began. And even students of the Civil War don't understand what that meant. Because as it turned out, Grant's attention to the mail, which bespoke his desire to keep his men in contact with their families and to keep them happy was one of the great parts of the infrastructure of the Union or the U.S. Army. And in all of the post-Civil War fraternal meetings of the Society of the Army of the Tennessee, the Society of the Army of the Cumberland, of the Ohio, there were always speeches made about the importance of the mail and how, basically, as Grant boasted later, they got their mail as easily as people did in most of the major cities. Which which is astounding. Well, two things are astounding. A, that Grant thinks of this. Of course, as you as you point out, generals from time immemorial have known about its importance, but I imagine a lot of other people at the time didn't. You know, politicians probably weren't thinking of that as a priority. But secondly, then then he pulls it off and and decides and puts faith in Markland to be able to get it done. Well, that's true. But actually, I'd, I'll go back and just make a reference to my first book, which is where I I met Markland when I was researching it. Grant had a particular desire to have the mail delivered because Julia was a very poor correspondent and he yearned for mail from her from the very beginning of their relationship through the Mexican War and through his time in in the Pacific Northwest. And so the mail was always on his mind. But same too with Abraham Lincoln had been a postmaster, not during a war, but in New Salem, and he knew the importance of the mail. And then you had General Sherman, who knew the value of mail. I mean, in the last part of his memoirs, he has a whole little section where he talks about the importance of mail and what commanders ought to do to make sure that their men get the mail. So this was a very well understood aspect of the war. And even the politicians understood this because when it became clear that they couldn't get stamps to the soldiers as expeditiously as the soldiers wanted them, they always wanted stamps, they passed a law that said that 
They could just write soldier's letter on the envelope and that mm. would go postage due back to their homes. And, and that was a huge benefit for the U.S. Army that the Confederate Army did not do. Now, how did, uh, we'll get to the title of your book, Delivered Under Fire, which is another fascinating aspect of this in a minute, but how did Markland, how was he able to fix that Illinois problem, fix that backlog and, and, and prevent other massive backlogs from, from happening? You know, we have very little evidence and what evidence I think there is on that is probably in the National Archives where the post office department records are. None of them, almost nothing of that is digitized. And I was writing this book during COVID. So I really didn't have an opportunity to try to do that. I think it still would be quite an effort to find those, anything specific about it. Because Markland just sort of arrives and the problems get resolved and he moves on to the next place and the problems get resolved. It really, it's on the one hand, it's it's amazing. On the other hand, as a historian, it's frustrating to not get a lot of details. But then you go on to say and show how he gets this position where he's actually, in some, some cases, ahead of the front lines, that the post office or the postal part of the military is already going into territory, either controlled by the enemy or about to be controlled by the enemy. And so he, he's literally setting up a mail system in hostile territory. He is. And for the most part, he is the first civilian representative of the United States government in almost every city that comes under the Union command. And he's there right as Grant he doesn't follow, Grant says, and Sherman says he was in the van. He was in the advance right. of these troops to set up the mail system. Clearly, there was such a close working relationship between the major commanders. I mean, we see it not just with Grant and Sherman. We see it with Thomas. We see it with Howard. We see it with Buell. We see it with almost every major commander who know him by name, who trust him, who bring him in. They bring him into some of their war councils as they're Mm -hmm. plotting things. And in some cases, particularly we'll say the Sherman's march to the sea, he figures out a way to use the mail to try to confuse the Confederates about where Sherman is going. So he becomes a very active part of the military strategy for the Union. Well, let, let, let's take that specific example and t- take a little further. What was the plan to use, how to use the mail to make the Confederates confusing ideas about where Sherman was and about where he was going? That That's a fascinating thing. That's almost like World War II level secret intelligence stuff Well, it really on. is. And when I found this document, this four-page document that's in his papers in the Library of Congress. It's never been published before, although I think that Horace Porter makes a reference to it, but it's never been published. At this, at the point where Sherman is in Atlanta and thinking about moving, Grand is in City Point, Markland's in City Point, handling really all of the mail for all of the army. He's now come from the West to, like Grant has, 
to expand his territory to all of the army. And he's going back and forth. He's going between these two major commands because those are the two big army groups between Grant and Sherman back and forth. So he's getting firsthand this notion of what Sherman and Grant are talking about, what Grant's trying to, what Sherman's trying to sell to Grant, this march to the sea. And that the surprise is 25% of, of the value of, of doing this, having the offensive. And what he decides is that when Sherman leaves Atlanta, that he will still continue to send the mail the way he was on this Nashville, Louisiana, Atlanta railroad to make it look like maybe Sherman's just moving out. It's a feint. He's not really going anywhere. And they do that for a while. And the the Confederates are sort of lulled uh, until about two weeks. And then they realize, no, 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 no. And at that point, Marklin has sends in cipher a telegram to everybody saying all the mail for Sherman's army should be sent to Baltimore. So that will completely obscure where Sherman is going to come out. Right. Of course, we know that a lot of people didn't know where Sherman was going to come out. Even President Lincoln says to William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, Senator John Sherman, we know what hole he went into, but we don't know what hole he's going to come out of. Right. When Sherman arrives outside of Atlanta, before he actually takes Atlanta, Markland is there on a boat with 20 tons of mail for the for the soldiers. And that is verified by more than one account. That's just it's just mind-blowing because it just shows a massive organization, but it also shows in a way, I mean, the, the Confederacy has, even though it's weakening as the war goes on, the Confederacy has spies everywhere. So I'm sure there's the spies, the Confederate spies in Baltimore are saying, well, there's a ton of mail coming for Sherman's army here, so they must be coming this way. Exactly. And the the great thing, and in that moment, we do have a more detailed account of how Marklin handles this, because he says that all of the men who had been, who had served, because Grant had always had enlisted men seconded to him, he never allowed any other civilian than Marklin to touch his mail. But he said, he said all of these men who had been with him through Nashville and Memphis and Chattanooga and New Orleans and everywhere and had shouldered their guns to march, he said they dropped their guns, they went back to work just as they had for him. They knew the drill. And he said that the mail was distributed as quickly as it would have been in any major city in the North. And I kept reading this and I kept saying, why haven't I heard of this before? Why haven't I heard of this before? I, I think this is one of the most awesome parts of the march. And Sherman's got it in his memoirs, but mm. just don't really focus on the mail. Well, they like they like the the fighting and they like the soldiering and all that stuff. And they they don't like or don't pay attention to what we would call, I guess, infrastructure. Right. And that's exactly the term that I use for this. This mm. is such a, an amazing bit of infrastructure, and it makes me just wonder, you know, well, how do we think about other aspects of, of infrastructure that, that are like this? Okay, now, you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, when, when you kept saying, when I discovered these things in, in the Library of Congress, when I discovered these things, 
Please tell the buzzkillers how that happened, because that in itself is an interesting story. And people are always asking me, how do historians find new stuff? And your story about how that happens, which is explained very well in the book, is a fabulous one. Well, and again, I would say I didn't discover it. it well, was no, there. no, of course. Yeah. And yeah, anybody yeah. could have found it. But when I was working on my first book, which was called Lincoln's General's Wives, and it was about the wives of how the wives of four of Lincoln's top generals affected their husbands' military careers, particularly when I was dealing with Ulysses and Julia Grant, the focus was on the male because just as I mentioned, she didn't write. I think it's partly because of this eye defect she had and how she was coddled as a child. But for whatever reason, she just didn't write. And that's one of the reasons I'm also convinced that she ends up traveling with Grant more than almost any other wife of any other commander during the war. 10,000 miles during the war, wow. she, she travels. Marklin's name sort of pops up here and pops up there. And I'm thinking again, like you said, Absalom Marklin, this is an amazing name. And so as I'm sitting, and this was in 2008 in the Library of Congress manuscript reading room, I just look through and there is a file of Marklin's papers at the Library of Congress. So of course I requested it right away. And then these are, these are all business. It's, there's no personal stuff in there, but even mm -hmm. from that file, you could see it starts Fort Donaldson, Nashville, Memphis. In there, you get Vicksburg, and you get you get New Orleans, you get City Point. You get you end up sort of populating a map that looks exactly like everywhere Grant's armies were. I ended up photographing all of those documents. Even though I, I only talked about him in basically one paragraph in that book, I just couldn't get him out of my mind. When I decided to, when I was getting ready to, to write another book, I thought, is there enough there? The business side of it, I could tell he had something to do with the post office, but he was also being referred to as Colonel, and he was everywhere Grant was. So I, I just thought, mm, there's not enough here. Can I find more? And I began to look through newspaper archives. And my God, he was everywhere in the newspapers. The newspapers loved Markland because wherever Markland went, then their readers knew that the mail could get through. Yeah. That was Markland. Markland was the man that opened up each one of these cities, towns, or regions that Grant's armies took to the mail. So this was huge news, and it would be reported. The Vicksburg op opening was reported in Oregon papers and Florida papers and everywhere. But even with that, hundreds and hundreds, and you can see behind me, you can see behind me, but- <laughs> The listeners I, can't, yeah. Yeah, right, it's a right. very nice library, Buzz. But I, have, I nice. have binders and binders. I printed out every single newspaper article I could find, and it's just 10 three-ring binders. But even with that, I thought, I need to know the man. How do I know the man? How do I get to know the man? And then I found, it, and again, you can't say I found, but in trying to look at the different places he went, 
I looked in all of the archives in all of the cities that he, where he opened the mail, where he served as temporary postmaster opening the mail. And in Nashville at the Tennessee State Library and Archives, I hit the Bonanza. They mm -hmm. had a file there that has a whole collection of about 30 letters to his wife and to his brother-in-law, who was his best friend. And when I asked the archivist there, who this wonderful Dr. Tom Cannon, I asked him, how did you end up with these? Because they he was only there for a short amount of time until they moved on to Memphis. And he looked up how they acquired those letters. Turns out that somebody, he couldn't even find the name, but somebody found these letters in a bookstore in Charleston, South Carolina, in the 1930s and bought them and left them to the Tennessee archives. Now, if we ever want to talk about contingency in history, we right. can talk about contingency in history, but to talk about contingency in writing history, all of the things that, that had to happen for those letters to be there for me to find them, that finally gave me some sense of the man. And that's when I realized I could write the, the book. Yes. And, and, it is a great book. And by the way, Buscolos, we're deliberately not talking about his post-war career because we want you to get the book and, and study it. We don't want to give the whole plot away. But it is also fascinating. This is a man with immense abilities and immense abilities being applied at exactly the right time. Absolutely. And the only thing I'll say about his post-war service, immediately after the war, barely a month after the war, Grant sends him the saddle that he used through the whole war and says that it's not given for any intrinsic value that this saddle has, but a token of his friendship and esteem and with the hopes that their services can continue together. And later, Grant does ask him to come back into the Postal Service. He's left it to become a lawyer and lobbyist and to help him integrate the Postal Service, which is the largest patronage cabinet department at the time, larger than the Army. And Markland does work with him to try to defeat the Ku Klux Klan. And I'll only mention this because I've been listening again, just in, I've, I've listened to your podcast all along, but I went back to some of the real early ones. The one you did about the Ku Klux Klan and 2017, you did it. And then in 2018, you had Phil Nash talk about the passage of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And everybody, including Eric Foner, whom I admire, obviously, we all admire greatly, has this narrative that says that the passage of that act was in response to the violence that the Ku Klux Klan perpetrated in the Deep South. And in fact, what I found was different from that, and that what prompted the passage of the Ku Klux Klan Act was when Grant and Marklin did something that directly affected white Democrats and white men, rather than dealing with the terrors of the Ku Klux Klan against the Black citizenry. Yes, it's it's a rich, very rich story. It's a very rich history. And you tell it so well. I'm so glad you did it because I, I talk again and again and again wherever I give public talks about 
infrastructure and about taking World War II as an example in, in intelligence, all the code breakers and all the thousands of, in British history anyway, they're called Wrens, Women's Royal Navy Auxiliary. They're the ones who actually did the transcribing and figuring stuff out. You know, they did all the hard work and all the basic work. And you can't get more basic th than the male. And the male is, in fact, basic to morale. So I think this is the perfect book to exemplify that need in history to, to learn about these people, but also to show that they make a huge, huge difference. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that because for the first year that I was doing research on this and trying to decide about whether I was going to work on this, I kept thinking, somebody has had to have done this. Somebody must have done this. Mm. There are more than 70,000 books about the Civil War. There must be at least one that's about how did the mail get delivered? Because we all read these letters between the home front and the front lines. And we always think, at least for a moment, how did that mail get back and forth? But nobody had done it. And I just couldn't believe it. And I kept thinking yeah. as I worked on it, that somewhere somebody's going to pop up and say, no, no, that's already been done. It goes back to that old saying about how Amateurs talk about strategy and professionals talk about logistics. And here yeah. we are. <laughs> this, this is the deal. This is the deal. Yeah. Well, another part of the deal is it's so great that people like you are out there doing this work. And this is one of the reasons that this is one of the things that shows us that history continually needs to be done. Even though there are 70,000 books on the Civil War, there need to be 70,000 more eventually. So it just remains for me to say, first of all, thank you for writing the book, but thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've, I've admired your work for a long time, and, and it's a real honor for me. I came very late to the study of the Civil War and certainly to writing in my, in my lifetime, and, and so it's, it's just a, a real honor to connect with you and your audience. Well, and we hope you come on again when you start your new project. And even in mid-project, you can tell us about your research adventures. Well, thank you very much. I'd love to. Buzzkillers, Delivered Under Fire is on the Buzzkill bookshelf, of course. And for you lucky Patreon supporters of the show, you can apply to get the free copy that we have to give out. So please do that ASAP and please do all the things you normally do at Professor Buzzkill, which is rate and review us on your podcast platforms. Tell all your friends about the, about the show. And of course, remember that we will, as always, talk to you next week. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. 
and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.